Thank you so much to all of you for being here. Um, I'll start with a thank you to the audience. It's good to have all of you with us for what is a, a question that I don't think any of us is um, in all of our different home countries is paying anywhere near enough attention to. So good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever time zone you happen to be in. Thank you for making time to be here. Um, with that, I also want to say a big thank you to Sahat, Sharifa, Kamil, and of course, Ben. Um, an extra thank you to Ben for also agreeing to moderate this conversation. And I'm so sorry, Ruki, Ruki as well. Um, we have people from very many different countries and I think very many different um, perspectives and experiences in terms of how they see the, um, the Rohingya crisis and the Rohingya struggle for dignity and for justice. Um, so I'm looking forward to um, to getting this conversation on the road. Um, I want to start by talking briefly about um, just saying that, you know, uh, we are recording this. We are um, streaming this live on Facebook as well. Um, when we are done with this conversation, we will also transcribe it and put it up on the Himal website, himalmag.com. Um, so for any of you who are joining in and would want to share this and amplify the conversation that we have here today, um, please do. Um, we'll have that up and shareable as soon as we can. Um, I also want to invite all of you to please follow Himal um, on our various social media uh, handles on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also, of course, our website, himalmag.com. And for any of you who appreciate the work enough to, to lend us a hand, um, please do support us by becoming members of Himal South Asian at, at himalmag.com slash membership. Um, so I want to start um, the conversation now properly um, by talking about um, just the title that we've um, selected, the Rohingya crisis at sea and beyond. Um, I think it's important, of course, to talk about the the, the current um, crisis, um, but I think we'll also be talking a lot about the, the beyond side of that um, title. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit of why. Um, last year, um, this is according to figures from the UN, um, we had about uh, more than three and a half thousand Rohingya um, attempting a desperate, desperate journey to flee by sea from Bangladesh or from uh, and or from Myanmar. Um, and of course, they did these journeys on very often um, boats that were not really ready for the kinds of journeys that we're talking about. These are journeys to Malaysia. These are journeys to Thailand. These are journeys sometimes much further than that. Um, about Christmas last year, 2022, towards the end of December, um, there was tragic news that a single boat had gone missing with 180 people, 180 Rohingya who had tried to make this journey, who are still unaccounted for. Among them, a lot of children, a tragic number of them. And that's just one case. Um, three and a half thousand um, Rohingya refugees attempting this journey was a more than fivefold increase on the previous year. And I think as a barometer of the, the kind of conditions and the kind of difficulties and desperation often that the Rohingya are facing in various countries, um, that speaks very, very loudly. Um, so we do want to talk about that, of course, and what's driving that. Um, because, and you know, of course, um, I think we all know at least the basics of the, the Rohingya's um, situation. Um, a Muslim minority people historically um, had found and built a home in, um, in Rakhine State or Arakan in uh, Myanmar. 
um, long stateless, long persecuted in 2017, forced out. Um, some places have described it as an exodus, but I think it's more accurately described as a mass expulsion at the hands of the, the Myanmar military. Um, more than a million, or I think um, by the latest figures, something close to a million people in Cox's Bazar across the border in Bangladesh now, um, and many more in other parts of the world. So in many ways, this is very much a South Asian problem um, and a South Asian crisis. And I think in many ways, a test of South Asia and our various countries in terms of whether we could open our our countries and our hearts to people who were treated so desperately badly. Um, when we talk about South Asia, of course, Bangladesh, I mean, there's, of course, there's Myanmar, where the crisis begins. Um, but there's Bangladesh, um, host a long-term population of people. Um, in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, there are thousands we have Ruki here to, to tell us a little bit more, especially about the situation in Sri Lanka. In India, which I think also has largely failed the Rohingya, where they are being treated as pawns in a very cruel game of Hindutva politics and Hindu majoritarianism. Um, and in Myanmar, of course, where of course the, now the government in charge is the same military um, that actually perpetrated those atrocities in the first place. And even um, the opposition, or for some time, the government, um, the NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi, um, really came out uh, taking quite hostile stances to the Rohingya. So really, again, this is a South Asian problem, one that we as South Asians need to look at as a regional problem. But of course, the problem goes beyond that too. Um, there are Rohingya populations now in Thailand, in, in Malaysia, people trying to make the journey into Australia. Um, so it's um, it's big. It's a global problem in a way. Um, and so, you know, um, looking at the, the boat crisis um, and how that brought the, the crisis of the Rohingya and their plight back into the headlines, back into, into the public conscience in many parts of the world, um, now it's fading again. Um, and I think the, the conversation today is a conversation against that fading, against that kind of forgetting. This is a problem that we've not done enough on, and uh, we have not done enough to help the Rohingya. And I think all of us in South Asia and beyond um, can and should be asking, what can we in each of our home countries um, be doing to to help and aware really does the Rohingya struggle for for survival for dignified lives and for justice stand today um, so I think those are the big questions that we're grappling with um, here so it is very much looking at the present and I think a lot of also the the future I think um, of what um, what the Rohingya struggle will be looking like um, so with that, I want to hand over to um, Raisa, um, the deputy editor here at Himal South Asian, um, to introduce all of our speakers. I also realized that I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Roman Gautam. Um, I'm coming to you today from Kathmandu. I'm the editor here at um, Himal South Asian. Thank you again to all of you for being here, to our panelists. Raisa, um, I'll leave the introductions to you, and then we'll let Ben take it away. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for um, what promises to be a very interesting and urgent discussion. Um, just to go over a little bit of the format. Uh, first, um, we'll be having a back and forth with the panelists 
in terms of the Q&A. And after that, um, we will open it up uh, for questions. So um, people who are listening, if you do have a question, please drop a comment in the chat box on Zoom. Or if you're following us on Facebook, uh, do comment on Facebook as well. And uh, we'll get your questions across to the moderator. Um, without further ado, I'm just going to um, introduce all our panelists and our moderator. Um, so today we are very fortunate to have Ben Dunant, who is the Editor-in-Chief of Frontier Myanmar, with us, um, and he's going to moderate this discussion. Um, in terms of our panelists, we have Kamil Ahmed, who is a journalist for The Guardian and author of I Feel No Peace. Uh, we have Ruki Fernando, who is a human rights activist. We have Sahat Zia Hero, the founding editor for Rohingya Tographer magazine. We have Sharifa Shakira, founder and director of the Rohingya Women Development Network. Um, unfortunately, Ankia Mo, a human rights advisor for the National Unity Government, was unable to make it at the last minute today. Um, so without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Ben uh, to take the conversation forward. Okay. Um, thank you for um, those introductions. It is a real privilege to uh, be able to moderate this panel, which has um, such a great lineup. I think that Roman was right to stress the international dimensions of the Rohingya crisis. I think it's a crisis by um, that from its very nature crosses uh, national boundaries. And I think our lineup today, you know, which is drawn from across uh, Southeast and um, South Asia really reflects that. And as introduced, it is my job to um, put the questions to the individual panelists to also address more general questions to the panelists and then to um, open questions up to the floor. So um, let's start uh, with a Hamal Ahmed, um, who has recently published a book that has been very well uh, received. And my first question um, to you, Kamal, is that the Rohingya crisis is often considered or often described as something that happened in 2017. You know, there was a series of mass atrocities that drove, you know, more than 700,000 people uh, across the border from uh, Rakhine State uh, to Bangladesh. And as your reporting shows, you know, there was a very, very long road leading up to uh, 2017. You know, you could um, look at the colonial history, you could look at the uh, gradual stripping of uh, citizenship and residency rights of um, of the Rohingya over many, many uh, decades of military rule. There was military operation in 1978. There was the mass expulsion in, in the 1990s. There was um, an anti-Rohingya um, pogrom in 2012 and other violence the following year. And then, you know, um, uh, attacks in 2016 that were then uh, overshadowed by the ones the following year in 2017. So I wonder from your research that you did from your book, um, what, do you, what would you consider the most important factors in Myanmar's recent or not so recent history in the creation of the crisis? And that it would be important to keep in mind when trying to understand it. Um, yeah, I think 
one of the biggest signs that it didn't start in 2017 is, I mean, the first time I went to the camps in Bangladesh was 2015. There were camps in Bangladesh before 2017, which were big. They now have kind of revised the figures down because I think the way they, I think some people who were never ever counted before got counted in 2017 for the first time. But they used to talk in 2015 when at the previous height of the boat crisis, there were 100, they, they used, you used to say 150,000 people Rohingya away in Bangladesh. It was a lot of people. A lot of them were unregistered, a lot in Malaysia as well. And I think you, you just see over decades a stripping away of rights of and increasing control of Rohingya lives. I think the Rohingya in this call will be able to say more about that because they have experienced that. Like Sharifa was one of the people I've met who left much earlier than many other people, um, especially to Malaysia. Um, in some ways, it seems like part of the story of a lot of post-colonial kind of nations, countries with lots of different identities that seem to try to force everyone together. But with Myanmar, I think while they try to, I think there's a kind of interesting thing of a lot of Myanmar's conflicts with its frontier regions are with people who want some kind of autonomy from the central state. The Rohingya, and the irony is the Rohingya are often viewed in a kind of securitized way and like there's often, well, are they going to become militants? Or like when Al-Qaeda in South Asia turned up, I mentioned Rohingya, like, are oh, Rohingya going to be like, there's always this idea that Rohingya will be radicalized. In reality, that the Rohingya have been the most like, in my from my perspective, the ones who have said that they want to be part of, they want to be part of it, they want to be, they want citizenship. They're not actually trying to fight. They've been remarkably like, it's remarkable considering everything they faced. Um, but yeah, in what you've seen is since I mean for decades. The first, I, I've also met people who went to a man who was in Bangladesh in the fifties. He he, there's people who have been to Bangladesh four times, but especially since seventy eight, just constant stripping away of rights. So seventy eight with the kind of population counting, then the actual stripping of the citizenship in eighty two, and then forced labor increase and then the violent like increasing violence to the point that 2017 was just widespread and a theory that came up once was that someone suggested i don't know i can't like say for sure i haven't actually reported in Myanmar, but it was that until twin until the kind of transition and Aung San Suu Kyi became and the civilian representation in parliament the military was like the opponent of many people, people wanted it out and they wanted the civilian government. That dynamic slightly changed when when you had a civilian face to the government. And I think you kind of saw a lot of hostility across all sorts, parts of the population. We we all saw how people who had been like democracy, pro-democracy activists were now kind of agitating against the ring and during the ICG ICJ trial, how they were supporting Aung San Suu Kyi when she went to when she went to uh the Hague to represent basically defend the military so you have this stripping away of citizenship that in a way even gets worse 
there's 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 a kind of face to it. There's there's that can justify everything once there's a democratic transition, and that seems to have opened the way for even worse to happen in 2017. But it's basically yeah, like I think this is why I have a problem with the ICJ and general talk of genocide starting in 2017. It it it. In terms of wiping out and erasing the Rohingya, it's happened for many decades. Yeah, I think that is absolutely right, and I think it's I think it's very important to um, understand it as a long process that may have uh, peaked at twenty seventeen um, in many ways, but you know is part of a long sort of program of uh, discrimination and the erosion of basic rights. Um, and I think we're we're going to return to some of the issues that you just. Um, discussed there. And one thing I'd like to discuss later is that, you know, you mentioned how there was this very disturbing response from many people in the pro-democracy movement to um, the um, increase of violence in Rakhine State and the military operations against the Rohingya, the level of public support for that. And I think I think later on, I'd like to discuss about how that may or may not have transformed with the coup and the nationwide resistance movement to that. But first, just to go back to one of the themes of your book, you talk of a very long chain of complicity in the plight of the Rohingya, one that involves many other countries in the region, but also uh, the United Nations, international uh, uh, NGOs and uh, aid agencies, um, and so on. So could you talk a little bit about that? Like, why should these actors share some of the blame for what the um, Rohingya are facing and the uh, dangerous journeys that they feel compelled to take to escape the camps or Rakhine State itself? I think the fact that you have in 78 a massive, a quite significant expulsion or exodus, then in 19, the 1990s you have another. And in both type, on both occasions, a massive amount of people were returned and if you look at the conditions they returned under, the UN themselves, in their own evaluations, say there was a lot of coercion. I think in the book, kind of linked to the name, it wasn't where the name came from, but I started exploring what is the actual, what is peace? What is what is it they, they have been returned to in these situations? What, what decisions did the international community and the UN decide were good enough to be returned to? And it wasn't that they were given guarantees of safety. It wasn't that they were given their citizenship back after 82. It was, it was just that things got a bit quiet, that there wasn't the military operations that had forced people out had stopped or paused. And that was considered good enough. No solution was required. It was just considered good enough to send them back and kind of release that burden on the humanitarian system or Bangladesh. And that meant that nothing had to be solved. And in fact, it could get worse without anyone solving it. It could just get worse and no one paid attention. Um, and that led to 2017. It meant in 78, however many people went, and then in, in the 1990s, about 250,000 when it increased. And in, 2000, in 2017, it <laughs> multiplied by several times. And in between, many, many more people. As they were repatriated people, repatriating people by force in the 90s there were more people coming it was there was never a solution they were basically they created quiet they accepted a quiet rather than a peace um and in doing so they accepted also um the Bangladeshi governments of those times enforcing 
food massive food rationing, which you're now seeing maybe not through the not through the Bangladeshi government's choice, but through donors not giving money now with 17% food ration, which could get worse, food cut, which could get worse in April. Um, in the 78, they say more people were probably killed by the lack of food than by the military operation in Myanmar. Um, the UN have been complicit in that. And in the 90s, there was a uh, someone who did a study for, for the US government or US Congress and said what he saw was, uh, and the MSF did similar, had made similar observations were taking volunt- like uh, consent for, for repatriation. They would just have loads of people and just say, unless you object, you're going back. Um, there were a lot, really a lot of kind of violations of what the UN is supposed to be doing and international kind of bodies are supposed to be doing. They, they have, it seemed, limited their mandate often to providing shelter and providing food and all of the other things they have responsibility for to make sure people aren't returned to unsafe conditions. They they haven't been respected and to people they've allowed people to be forced back to because they maybe because they're scared that governments will say well if you don't do what we want we're going to stop you doing anything but i think they do this this isn't specific to bangladesh either they do this in a lot of countries and not many countries actually kick them out um and i think the rohingya have been failed there because by doing the bare minimum bare minimum and not solving any of the root problems the situation has been allowed to just become bigger. And so now you have a situation where a million people are in camps, more and more people have come over the years and they don't have, they're, they're having, their food is being cut. And then, but they're not allowed to work to supplement their food. They're not allowed to travel. And so of course you're going to get people looking for something else, which is fuel fuel for traffickers. Thank you very much, Kamal. Um, you, you mentioned, um... What amounted to force um, um, uh, returns or um, refoulement, you know, uh, during earlier periods, and perhaps um, later we can discuss the fact that since shortly after 2017, there has been this supposed bilateral repatriation process between uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar that the military junta now still pays occasional lip service to. But on the subject of uh, United Nations and aid and food cuts on uh, Zia hero. Um, I, I would like to ask you next um, about um, conditions in the uh, refugee camps in Bangladesh, um, and if you could speak on uh, the impacts or the uh, likely impacts um, on the Rohingya there of these uh, recent cuts um, to food aid. Um, and just some insight into that and other reasons why so many who uh, feel compelled to make these incredibly dangerous journeys, you know, by sea or uh, overland too. I think it's important to say that although the journeys, dangerous journeys by sea get a lot of the headlines, many of them are going uh, uh, overland as well, both, you know, those in, inside Mima, um, but those from the camps as well. There's a complicated overland, right, too. But could you please speak on um, the conditions in the camps, particularly in light of the uh, recent cuts to food aid. Thanks, uh, Rita, and uh, 
abandoned for uh, providing providing me this opportunity uh, to raise my voice uh, on behalf of my community, uh, losing lives in search of a better life in the countries like Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. So uh, yeah, over the five years, you know, uh, Rohingya have been living in the makeshift camp in Bangladesh without uh, adequate food, shelter, healthcare, and uh, opportunity for uh, formal education and uh, without access to formal uh, work opportunity and livelihood opportunity. So, uh, you know, the situation uh, is uh, even worse than now than before. Uh, I, I think you heard about the, all of you heard about the uh, UN uh, cutting food ration of the Rohingya refugees, cutting food ration for the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. You know? So uh, it's like, uh, you know, a, a direct violation of the human, you know, a direct violation of the humanitarian principle uh, that cutting the food ration of the uh, refugees who are already in dire situation, uh, who don't have uh, access to work, who don't uh, have access to uh, formal education, who are already living in the uh, you know isolated uh, situation, you know. So uh, in this situation, you know, most of the people are like uh, uh, like people are losing their hope uh, to go back to Myanmar. Uh, so uh, they are uh, trying to like trying to live uh, flee from the camp and uh, live their life to seek. Uh, a new life to to seek a better life uh, in other countries in the, in other countries like uh, Malaysia, Thailand, and Indonesia. So these are the reason uh, the situation in the camp and uh, the the challenges uh, they face uh, every day in the camp. Thank you very much. Just to um, ask a follow up question, um, what would you say the main uh sentiments in terms of a desire to um return to their homes in uh Rakhine state versus other options say resettlement in uh third country um would you say that many of them hope um very strongly to one day um return to, to Rakhine state but if so under what conditions would they be prepared to do so um and in terms of those feelings and hopes of the future, has there been any significant change um, over the last year or the last um, few years? The desires of the Rohingya community now, uh, speaking generally, because I'm sure people have very different views, um, we say there's a very strong desire to return uh, to their homes in uh, Rakhine State um, versus other options like Third, third country resettlement, if that were to become more available um, than it currently is? And if so, like un, under what conditions would they be um, prepared to return home in light of the fact that there is a repatriation process going on that, you know, the Myanmar military says that they are committed uh, to carrying out? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are people feeling about that, about the possibilities of returning home and what conditions would need to be there? 
right now uh, most of the people think that uh, there would be a heavy risk uh, if they return to Myanmar uh, in this current situation there and uh, which became very worse after the military uh, junta sided the power in fall uh, in 2021 so uh, uh, we uh, Rohingya people in the refugee camp also hear the uh, the conflict and the, uh, I think uh, what's happening there in Myanmar right now. So uh, people also fear uh, to go back to Myanmar in this in in the current situation there. So uh, but uh, Rohingya also uh, think that. Uh, uh, like uh, they will be remaining the limb who you know they will be remain uh, remain in the uh, uh, in this uh, war in situation uh, if the world uh, totally forgotten uh, forget uh, the Rohingya people and and if the world don't come forward to uh, to make a, a sustainable solution for the Rohingya community and to uh, to pursue the justice uh, that the Rohingya people need. So uh, some of the Rohingya people uh, think uh, the best option could be uh, the resettlement in third country, then uh, going back to Myanmar in this situation without the without uh, without justice and without uh, uh, the right back. So. Uh, and uh, yeah, people think that the resettlement could be also a, a, a better option uh, to, uh, to better than like uh, staying in this uh, in this system in this uh, bad situation here in the refugee camp. Thank you very much. Um, now, I'd like to address questions uh, to Ruki. Um, uh, I understand you were able to meet with some Rohingya refugees in uh, Sri Lanka. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about the conditions in which they are being held there and what their um, freedom of movement is and anything else that would that it would be important for us to know? Uh, so at the moment, uh, about 140 uh, Rohingya refugees in Sri Lanka. Uh, out of them, uh, about 105 uh, came recently last December in, uh, during the most recent kind of a crisis in the seas. So one of the boats uh, was near Sri Lankan waters and some fisher folk had alerted the Navy and the Navy had rescued them and brought uh, 105 of them. One of them is accused of driving the boat and as such committing an offense. Uh, that person is in prison and has been in prison for more than two months. Uh, there is a lawyer representing him, uh, but uh, we also tried to get some uh, affidavits from fellow passengers who are also in a different immigration detention center, uh, but legal law lawyer's team has not been allowed to go uh, to the immigration detention center, uh, even though we have made formal representations. So therefore, it's very difficult for us to get the supporting evidence uh, to help the, the one Rufina refugee who is in a prison, not in Colombo, very, very far away uh, in the Northern province. The, out of the others, uh, the 104, uh, about 30 uh, who were in detention have been released and about 75 are still in the immigration detention center. Uh, but about another 35 more Rohingya refugees who have come several years ago 
some by boat, mostly by boat, but some by flight as well, uh, are residing in a suburb of uh, Colombo. Uh, and they are able to move around easily. They are renting houses, rooms, and staying. So it's a mixed uh, picture of uh, in terms of freedom of uh, movement. Um, thank you very much. So I understand that you know many of them are in uh, detention now. You mentioned this sort of one individual that had a uh, pending legal case. Um, are many of them, uh, are they able to apply for refugee status with uh, UNHCR? Um, what is the process for that? What are some of the uh, roadblocks that they um, may um, face when applying for a uh, refugee? Uh, all of them have access to UNHCR, even those in detention. And uh, many of them actually were already registered with UNHCR before they came here. Many of them have come from Cox's Bazaar. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah. So therefore, actually, compared to the other asylum seekers in Sri Lanka who have to start from scratch, the Rohingya refugees uh, process the, of permanent finding permanent resettlement should be faster because they have already been uh, has applied for UNHCR refugee status and some of them have got uh, refugee status. Uh, mm -hmm. But even people who have come about five years ago are still in Sri Lanka and UNHCR has not been able to find them permanent resettlement. So finding permanent resettlement has been a challenge. Uh, also, uh, most of these people, the vast majority of these 140, uh, Sri Lanka is a transit country, but a very long transit of several years because of the structural problems involved in uh, dealing with asylum seekers and refugees in Sri Lanka. Uh, but even to come for transit, some of them did not intend to come here. They were intended to, for example, one young, very young woman that I met about two weeks ago, uh, she told me that her husband is already in Malaysia uh, as a refugee. And she said she wants. She never wanted to come to Sri Lanka. She doesn't want to be in Sri Lanka. Uh, she wants to go to Malaysia. Or the, in the alternative, she wants her husband uh, to come to Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, both Sri Lanka and Malaysia might be, Sri Lanka for sure is a transit place. So even in transit, Sri Lanka is not their chosen a transit place, but because they happen to be rescued uh, from the seas near Sri Lanka and brought to Sri Lanka, they happen to be in Sri Lanka. Um, thank you for explaining that. I also wonder, is there anything, um... I mean, perhaps the numbers would be too small for this to have the same kind of impact. But as Roman said, you know, to the north in uh, India, for instance, um, there's uh, toxic politics around um, the presence of the uh, Rohingya in India. Um, uh, Hindu right wingers there have tried um, to scapegoat them and so on. Um, I mean, You've seen an Islamophobic politics in uh, Sri Lanka as well. Um, so is there anything in Sri Lanka's domestic politics at the moment that would make um, conditions more uh, difficult for um, Rohingya refugees in the country? Uh, yes, uh, I think in the past uh, we've had uh, bad experiences and there's potential that there could be bad experiences here as well uh, because of Islamophobia in general. Uh, we, most of the refugees and asylum seekers who come to Sri Lanka are from Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, so there's a perception uh, that many of them are Muslims, which is not always correct. Some of them are Ahmadiyya Muslims who have been persecuted by other Muslims, and many of them are Christians also who have been persecuted for being Christian. But here in Sri Lanka, many of them are perceived as Muslims. So they have, for example, after the Easter Sunday attacks happened in Sri Lanka, many of them were evicted and they faced a lot of difficulties. In 2017, uh, some Rohingya refugees who were in Sri Lanka uh, in a house, including children, were attacked uh, by a group of Buddhist monks and thugs. 
and for protection purposes, they were taken to a detention center. So even when I tried to visit the detention facility uh, in late December, a few days after they had arrived in Sri Lanka, so the immigration officers told me that they had to be mindful of their security. When UNHCR is mindful of their security. So there is fear that if they stay around living in houses, move around the streets, there is a possibility of some uh, people who are angry with Muslims in general, or not be, uh, because of Islamophobia in Sri Lanka, that they might face hostility or difficulties. So therefore, that is often also used as an excuse to detain them and to limit access to them. For example, the, in the immigration detention center, the immigration officers feel that they should not be having visitors. Uh, but you know, they are not uh, accused of any crimes. So primarily, they are in the immigration detention center because they have not been found houses. You know, the Sri Lankan government doesn't offer houses to asylum seekers and uh, refugees, to any asylum seeker or refugee, not just Rohingyas. And it's only some well-wishers or NGOs or church groups or like faith-based groups that has to offer housing. But the lack of housing has compelled them to be in uh, detention as well. And while in detention, the immigration uses the Islamophobia as an excuse to limit taxes. Okay, thank you um, for explaining that. Um, just to move on to uh, Sharifa. Um, just to begin with, like just to um, segue from the last point, I understand you spent a lot of time in Malaysia among the refugee community there. Um, uh, recently from Malaysia, there's been a lot of bad news that, you know, it's become uh, less of a safe haven there, um, you know, including for the Rohingya over, there was rather a dark turn over um, the COVID-19 um, pandemic, you know, what was previously a much more accepting and a warm environment for the Rohingya, you know, that has um deteriorated so could you speak a little bit about that about you know conditions for um uh Rohingya refugees in uh Malaysia um and how their circumstances has uh changed over the last few years uh good morning and uh, assalamu alaikum uh i have la uh, lived in malaysia for a long time almost half of my life uh, i spent 21 years in malaysia as a refugee um, I I went there when I was very young, um, and I left Malaysia um, with the resettlement opportunity in 2019 to United States. So while I was in Malaysia, I have seen from the beginning till I left, which is right now, the situations. Um, when I came to Malaysia, people in Malaysia, the public, are not aware of what is Rohingya are what is refugees and was it migrants, what the difference between that. And um, obviously they have never heard uh, the name Rohingya. Um, the, the government is aware uh, of our existence and our problems, but the public are not aware. And uh, because of that, they always misunderstood us um, between the migrants workers, as well as you know our existence. And they often call us, um, uh, illegal migrants from Bangladesh and stuff like that. So we face uh, discrimination and all those things. And at the same time, um, the government do not recognize Rohingya uh, refugees in the country, which is not conventional, they said. So with that excuse, refugee children are not allowed to go to school. Um, people are not, refugees are not allowed to work, um, including not able to access to healthcare, any, uh, you know, like basic, uh, things that a person need is not allowed there and um, because we are not allowed to stay there um, we often uh, live in fear and hide and um, try to escape from the authority um, uh, that's the situations from the beginning but um, 
since coup uh, started, uh, I'm sorry, uh, since the COVID started uh, in 2020, and um, there was a huge um, hate campaign was organized online by a Malaysian people uh, towards Rohingya in Malaysia. I don't know why they only targeted Rohingya refugees, but there's a lot of other refugees in the country, but Rohingya targeted. And um, there's a lot of hate was uh, spread uh, around the country and Rohingya were blamed for the virus, uh, that we carry the virus. The things that we, we can go out and come in from the country very easily, which is absolutely not true. Um, and then uh, we were blamed. Um, the blame uh, were blamed, but the effect of those hate uh, uh, camping was so huge that is still affecting people in the country. Every day, uh, people from Malaysia, you know, uh, know me, sending me videos, pictures, recordings, and requesting me to speak about for them that uh, their situation is getting really, really bad over there. And there's a lot of, um, you know, some Malaysian people are trying to do create a TikTok videos going like a police, you know, trying to pretend like as if they are the authorities over there and going to where Rohingya are living and I'm um, trying to, you know, record them and blame them. Oh, you cannot stay here. You cannot open a, a, a madrasa, you know, which is to study religious uh, things. You cannot do this kind of small business. You cannot do this. It's trying to expose them, uh, uh, you know, with the public. And it's, it's bring a lot of hate that their lives over there has become really, really dangerous and not safe. They were not protected, but because of this ad, this issue, their life become really, really dangerous over there. Um, um, they are not still not able to get protection from any agencies over there. Um, yeah, and they've been evicted. They have been chased out, you know, and the government is trying to pull uh, the public, the, the Malaysian who are supporting the Rohingya, you know, uh, responsible for helping them. Example, getting the house to stay or, you know, helping them in a small uh, business or stuff like that. So they're trying to hold them accountable, trying to create the fear uh, among the public not to help refugees. Uh, and it's only Rohingya, not all the refugees in the country. Thank you for that, for sharing that. I mean, that is especially troubling to hear because Malaysia is being considered a uh, relative safe haven for a long time, and it still appears to be uh, the number one destination for um, Rohingya sort of trying to escape the camps or uh, villages or IDP camps in uh, Rakhine State, you know, whether by sea or um, while being smuggled over land. Um, but I'd like to ask you a question that speaks to like more to your work, you know, and your the organization, um, the uh, Rohingya Women uh, Development Network. Um, um, in, in light of the particular work um, that you do, um, uh, I wonder if you could speak of some of uh, uh, the gendered aspects of the crisis that tend to be missed by the media. Um, what is misunderstood, you feel, about um, Rohingya women in uh, the international discourse? Um, if, um, and um, what issues you think are important that are relevant to them that are not being um, talked about enough? Sure. Um, as we all know that 
the uh, fleeing from uh, the human trafficking uh, issues being uh, there within the Rohingya community for many, many years from the beginning. Um, I left in 1999 and they are way before that. Uh, people are trying to leave because of the persecutions in Myanmar. Um, most of uh, the people left uh, at that time mostly was men. And, um, um, you know, the, the women with the children were left behind. Um, so uh, they, uh, uh, just as more women and minor girls have fallen victims while uh, being trafficked uh, because of, uh, through the ring that extend the Burma and Bangladesh to Thailand and um, Malaysia elsewhere, there are also women involved in such as, uh, as a, uh, you know, uh, proceeding um, to trafficking, detaining, torturing, um, the people who, uh, I mean, of course, it's happened both a man and a woman uh, in that sense. In regard of some of the misunderstood uh, things about Rohingya women in international discourse, uh, that they are naive, uh, weak, and need to be told uh, what to do. Um, I think that uh, I kind of disagree in that. I think that Rohingya women are um, very intelligent, strong, and um um, they they can take their own uh, decision when it's need or you know want to. Um, they are brave, are resilient and enduring. Um, I I love uh, the attitudes of not giving up. Uh, uh, attitudes of our Rohingya women, uh, you know, have uh, in the absence of uh, who often have to flee as they were targeted by the Burmese uh, forces. The women have uh, uh, handedly saved and kept uh, them uh, themselves, their families, and protected their children in the face of continual violence. Um, they are multitasking. Uh, they can uh, they take care of children and uh, do housework, do jobs when it's needed, including um, study. Um, so I think that provided that they were given more opportunity to study and skills and work, they can be as powerful, as strong, um, and as uh, as their men and uh, counterpart in the society, um, if uh, not more. Uh, Rohingya women is in short for me to say that they should not just seem as uh, victims of all these persecutions, trafficking, child marriage, domestic violence, all those things that happening. But I think they should be seen as, a, like I said earlier, a resilient uh, persons that, um, and are very brave and strong that, you know, have the attitude of um, going forward and they, they're very strong. Like example, my mother, uh, she left, she was in, the, in jail just for traveling within the countries and um, she fight back, uh, you know, after serving the, uh, her days there and came back for her family and friends, uh, her family and children and, and she protected them, you know, no matter what. So this is the stories that have to be highlighted and um, the world need to see that how strong we are. Is the persecution has been there from very beginning, uh, but uh, we are still fighting, and we will still fight. And we are the you know strong backbone of our community as well. Thank you very much. There's uh, there's a more more that I'd like to ask you, and I'm sure the the audience will have uh, questions for you as well. But just um, now at this stage, I would like to um, put a few more uh, general questions to all the panelists, to whoever wishes uh, to answer to them, and then we can move on to 
uh, questions for the audience for the uh, final half an hour. Um, so just to begin with, um, there's been some references to uh, the military coup in um, 2021. Um, so whoever would wish to respond to this on the panel, um, how would you say the coup has changed the circumstances, but also the prospects for the future of um, Rohingya refugees and those who um, remain in Myanmar, either in their villages or uh, IDP camps in Rakhine State? Um, does the nationwide resistance movement hold out hope for a better future for the community? Or does um, the growing power of uh, the Arakan army, for instance, in uh, Rakhine State um, hold out the same? So um, who would like to respond to that one? Arifa, would you would you like to respond to that one? And I think, I mean, I'd be interested to hear your perspective, but also of the wider um, Rohingya community, you know, how, how they've responded to the emergence of nationwide um, resistance after the uh, military coup, um, whether they hold out a lot of hope for that movement, and particularly in light of some of the promises that uh, the National Unity government has made to respect the uh, rights of the Rohingya, you know, once the revolution is uh, successful. Sorry, there's uh, some problems here. So no, I fine. think you were asking me questions about the uh, the 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 NUG government as well as um, Sorry, you were cutting out in between. Sorry, I'm trying to understand. Well, that. well, perhaps just be a bit more uh, specific. Well, the national unity government, you know, um, quite soon after the military do did um, make a public commitment to, you know, respect the citizenship rights of the Rohingya. And as you know, this was a bit of a sea change in um, mainstream Myanmar democratic politics. Um, would you say that you or others in the Rohingya movement hold out a lot of hope for the resistance movement? Do they, you know, is it seen as a sign um, for a better future or are there doubts over the sincerity of the movement, uh, particularly sure. in light of the position of the MLD and so on? Um, yes, thank you. First of all, I think the National Unity Government, NUG, is not a parallel government, uh, but the government mandated by the country's majority, I guess. Hence to say, uh, let's not doubt the military junta is not a government, but an illegal entity oppressing its own people uh, for power to uh, the same in control. Um, secondly, yes, uh, NUG has approached uh, the Rohingya plight uh, positively, but yet they are not decisive enough uh, to pass any order or, or law to restore them with its native uh, citizenship um, status and end decades along um, oppressive laws against the Rohingya. However, because of NUG, a positive public approach, um, you know, the majority Burmese um, public have become um, less hostile towards the Rohingya. Uh, that attitude uh, change uh, could uh, be utilized to bring in further if there is a willingness. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, NUG doesn't uh, look so committed to stop uh, operations against the Rohingya. Uh, it might have been other uh, pressing issues at hand. Uh, the biggest issue in the country, along with fighting the uh, military junta, is the Rohingya plight uh, as uh, it is international issue. Um, but uh, their commitment seems uh, 
situation now and could change if the political situation in the country change. However, you know, uh, just uh, let's hope and um, that we could see uh, some genuine uh, change. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Just to um, my second more uh, general question to uh, the panel is, um, what we can expect from uh, international legal uh, efforts to seek accountability for um, the Rohingya. There are a number of international legal processes operating um, in parallel. Um, for instance, uh, most famously, the genocide case brought by uh, the Gambia um, against Myanmar. They got on, um, underway in 2019. There's also what I understand, still an ongoing preliminary investigation by uh, the International Criminal Court for the um, Crime Against Humanity of Forced uh, Deportation. Um, there's also um, US, uh, universal um, jurisdiction cases, for instance, in uh, Argentina. Um, so, like, can we hold up much um, hope for these processes? Like, what can we expect from them? in the near term or um, the long term? Who, who would like to take that one? May be Carmel, I, I, um, I'm sure you've looked into this a little. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's good for the Rohingya on this to, to answer what they hope for them. But for from my perspective, I think it's always difficult, right, with the international justice stuff to see what, what actually come from it, whether, whether any of the any rulings are binding, whether it can have any material impact. Um, and that's difficult, especially with the ICJ case. But I think I was in I was in Cox's Bazaar the day like the ICJ case was announced. And just the feeling of kind of happiness and relief that there was something, there was some process for justice and that there was some like chance to actually be heard about what has been happening was I think very big for a lot of the Rohingya I, I knew. Um, and the days of the, the, the first preliminary hearings, the ones that Aung San Suu Kyi went to, like people were really desperately trying to watch them, even though Bangladesh had like blocked out the internet in the camps on those days. And then when Aung San Suu Kyi spoke and said the stuff, she basically defended the military, people were like, furious and disappointed because so many of their parents or earlier generations had actually supported her they felt really betrayed because so I think these are important they're important um because this they haven't really been had a chance to be heard out and this is a chance to actually say what has happened and what has systematically happened and not I think at most people know that there was some that there were massacres and that 700,000 fled in 2017. They don't know much beyond that. Um, and so that's why I think they're important. Whether they can, I don't want to be cynical about it. Like, so I don't know, I, I can't, it's always, it's just really tough. It, I think it seems like it's going to be a really long process. This, you, the ICG case itself is already 2019 with the preliminary hearings and we're still not yeah. concluded. The ICC investigation is way like we haven't even got to a full kind of case, so it's it's a long process. Um, so yeah, we'll have to see what can come out of it and what 
yeah, what can come out of it and whether it can actually be anything that makes a difference. Uh, but at least it brings internet, it keeps some international attention and hopefully helps people understand the severity. Um, I think maybe Sahat is good to talk about whether people actually in the camps still like feel kind of have hope in it. But I think it's also important because a lot of people went to the camps and took information and disappeared. They took accounts sometimes from the same people multiple times and then disappeared. So something needs to come out of that. Mm. Uh, me, Sahatsi, you could um, speak to some of that, how people in the camps view these uh, international justice efforts? Uh, actually, I, I want to say that, that people here in the camp always uh, rely on the international community to put pressure on the government of Myanmar. So uh, the people think that, that uh, if the situation in Myanmar can be resolved, or uh, if the situation there uh, get normal, so people uh, would like uh, to uh, to get freedom and uh, to uh, to get the peace and their rights there in Myanmar. So people uh, always uh, Rohingya people who know about the uh, the people resisting there in Myanmar. They always appreciate uh, the people who are in against the uh, military government uh, because uh, we can also uh, believe that there is uh, no other option than uh, uh, resisting by themselves rather than uh, always waiting for the UN uh, come and solve the situation that would uh, never happen so uh, okay. people here in the refugee camp the rohingya people also uh, support uh, and uh, appreciate who are <clears throat> resisting to get their right to uh, to get to protect their community by themselves thank you very much saha i see that um, Ricky has uh, put his hand up. Would you like to um, respond to that one too? Uh, right. Uh, mine might be, uh, you know, one comment might be slightly different perspective, but I think we have to look at uh, justice from a very more holistic perspective. And in my experience from a meeting, interacting with Rohingya refugees in Sri Lanka, a very relatively a very small number, uh, both in detention and out of detention, living in small places. For them, justice also means having a house to uh, stay in. It's not only about holding people accountable. Justice also means having uh, the food to eat, decent food to eat. Justice also means that they are able to reunite with their families when one has, husband is in Malaysia and the wife is in uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, no, justice also means that their children are able to have access to health care and education. So justice uh, to the people that I've met, the Rohingyas that I've met in Sri Lanka, uh, has a more kind of very uh, hands-on uh, practical approach. I'm fully in agreement and fully supportive of uh, you know, the broader international processes, but I think international justice and those who advocate, those who support uh, international justice for Rohingyas, must, it's important that they also uh, look at these very practical hands-on uh, you know, aspects of justice. And in terms of the longer, broader processes like what you just mentioned, 
at the ICC or ICJ or no, seeking international uh, accountability through international processes. I am fully in support. And in fact, if anyone wants to kind of you know, get this uh, affidavits or anything like that from those who are in Sri Lanka, uh, witness statements and all that, we are happy to assist uh, such processes to in international investigators or prosecutors. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ruki. Um, so now to turn to some of the questions, we've had a few questions, but we um, would welcome more. So, you know, please, uh, anyone in the audience, please feel um, free to ask anything, either to a particular panel's list or um, the panel at large. Um, to turn to our first question is about uh, the uh, Indian response to the Rohingya crisis. Um, you know, how do you characterize the uh, the uh, response in India? Um, uh, I understand that um, Roman is is also able to um, to speak on this point, but um, anyone else in the panel is also welcome to uh, speak on this if um, they have any perspectives on the Indian uh, response to the crisis. Well, I did a bit of work um, talking to Rohingya who had been in India while I was working on the book. And despite being really quite small in number uh, and concentrated only in a, couple, a few places, they really kind of play an outside role, an outsized role in media focus. Somehow they are off, brought up very regularly um, and demonized and kind of treated as these infiltrators. And these, again, goes back to this idea that there's always this kind of warning that the Rohingya are some kind of security for it, despite absolutely no evidence over many decades of them ever being so. Um, and yeah, it's obvious, it plays massively into kind of the issues with the BJP and Hindu nationalism and just the, yeah, the, the Rohingya are treated as some kind of threat, as some kind of threat to India and that has meant that even as some Rohingya have gone to India, still some do try to go to India because it's one of the closest places from Bangladesh. If you've been in Bangladesh camps for ages, um, they try to go through like the borders, like through the Chittagongkhel tracks so, or like the northeastern states mostly, um, which aren't too far from kind of eastern Bangladesh. At the same time, you've had people fleeing India and trying to come to Bangladesh. And there's been several waves of this, whether it's been through kind of the ID registrations um, and like collection of biometric data, which they fear. So there's been panic over that and whether that's going to be used to uh, deport them to Myanmar or whether that data will be shared in Myanmar uh, or, or just general like hostility and camp, whole camps being burnt down in Delhi um it's there's a lot and yeah, like bjp youth leaders bragging that they were responsible for that um the rohingya despite being a very small population have just been used in in, in media and in kind of very like extreme political rhetoric as like a boogeyman um and yeah, so they haven't had to skip. And they have actually been the regular arrests of people who do try to come in and they're put in deportation centers. And there was a woman deported. There have been people deported to Myanmar, um, which I think it's the only country doing that. Roman, do you have any um, 
thing to add to that? Because I understand you're able um, to speak on this issue too. Yes, I, I've spent a uh, very long time in um, in India, and I think Kamil is exactly right. I think one thing that's very noticeable in India, I think that um, by and large, um, the international coverage of the Rohingya, and of course that has filtered into a lot of domestic medias as well, um, has generated a tremendous amount of sympathy for uh, for the Rohingya plight. How much that translates into concrete action, of course, is not always great. Um, but in India, I think that um, the kind of hostility you see, um, I think it's just a thought experiment. Um, imagine how much media coverage um, vilifying the Rohingya there would have to be to counteract the basic sympathy that is generated by all of the um, the international coverage on the issue. And I think in India, that's exactly what there has been, the amount of media hatred and vitriol um, that's been uh, poured out against the Rohingya is, is immense. I think that um, it's a sign of what's happening that, um, you know, I think Rohingya has almost become a, a slur. Um, you know, the way that um, Bangladeshi, for instance, in the Hindu um, majoritarian lexicon is very much a slur. Um, and Rohingya, I think, is uh, moving in the same direction in terms of what that word means in the Indian context. Um, and, you know, the only thing I, I think um, is worth um, also adding, you know, Kamil was talking about the 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 deportation. I mean, that deportation, um, at least in one case, has been appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court did not um, stop it. India is not signatory to the Refugee Convention, which means that um, a lot of the basic protections that refugees could expect elsewhere are not afforded to them. India does have, of course, uh, um, laws on its own books that could, um, in theory, have stopped these deportations, but the court chose not to act in that case. Um, and I think um, what Kamil was saying about um, youth activists of the ruling party um, openly taking responsibility for and bragging about arson attacks on Rohingya camps, um, one more thing to to add to that is that Amit Shah, who is um, currently the home minister and the number two, um, usually to, to Narendra Modi, his closest lieutenant, um, has spoken in public calling Rohingyas termites. So um, the, the situation in India is about as grim as it can be. I think that India did have a, a position as a, a kind of beacon to some oppressed people, at least if not to a lot of oppressed people, um, until maybe in the last decade or so, I think that um, communal hatred has really stripped away um, where that sympathy is applied. It is now applied to only very specific small groups defined mostly in religious terms. And anyone who is Muslim, including the Rohingya, sadly, is no longer included in that circle of sympathy. Thank you very much, Raymond. Um, I'd like to move on to the next question. That question is... Um, what should be done to allow um, peaceful coexistence for the uh, Rohingya community based on cultural uh, integration? Um, this question of the possibilities of peaceful uh, coexistence and uh, cultural integration, I, I assume it's a reference to conditions in a Rakhine state rather than in um, refugee settlements or host communities uh, elsewhere in um, in the world. So we're talking about Rakhine State, obviously um, uh, the role of the Arakan army is very important there. And I think how their rise may have affected um, possibilities of um, communal 
um, reconciliation and greater cohesion in Rakhine State. So um, if I've understood that question correctly, would anyone um, in the panel um, like, um, like to respond to that? Um, perhaps one for our um, Ranger panelists, uh, Harifa um, or Saha, uh, would you like to would you like to respond to that? Whether you think the conditions for um, particularly reconciliation between the Rohingya and uh, the Rakhine have uh, improved, and that there are uh, positive things to uh, talk about in um, that respect, you know, sort of based on on what you've been hearing of people that you know who are there. Um, from what I've been hearing is uh, the situations of of Rohingya inside Arakan is getting worse. Um, our economy uh, is in the power and um, they are not less than the, the, the Burmese military. Um, the earlier when our economy was, you know, uh, coming to the light, they were trying to say that, um, that we can coexist and um, we can, you know, live there uh, peacefully. But, um, the stronger they become, uh, they're using Rohingya, you know, uh, they're using Rohingya, example, to, to uh, they, they, I, I see the uh, Arakan army and uh, the, the Burmese military junta is the, is a kind of same and using, uh, they have a similar tactic uh, towards Rohingya as well. Um, they are, situ because of uh, them, uh, you know, uh, again, the fear, um, the bombing, the killing, the Rohingya. I, 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 I think uh, when I example when I hear from my uncles and aunties who is in in Arakan in Mount Dobutidong, uh, they often fear and tell me that there's a gunfire and you know they they just take away uh, their people, you know for for any reasons and. They are exactly doing what Burmese military have been doing. So I think uh, the coexistence is important uh, because we also belong uh, in our current state. Uh, but um, I have no hope from our economy that uh, they will do certain something like that. Uh, um, from outside, uh, when we are outside of our like outside of Burma, people like us in, in diaspora, we we are connected. We have the similar understanding of, of uh, the term of democracy. Uh, we want to go back to our land. Uh, you want to be um, recognized as citizen. You want to live there peacefully. Um, but um, when uh, these discussions is, I see that it's only been uh, here, you know, it's just uh, stuck over here. It does not go, uh, like does not go all the way to the ground and it, the, there is no discussion from the ground yet. And um, I think the understanding, they still feel that Rohingya, uh, all the blames goes to Rohingya and they, no party is willing to hear what we are feeling, what we are thinking and how we want to live there and what what is our request, you know, uh, our opinion and uh, our understanding about these things, uh, about living uh, in this situation. So I think they always cited uh, side, uh, Rohingya uh, one side and always feel that um, 
and we just take the blames and, and they are not willing to hear. So when we raise our voice, they trying to say that we are against in this and that. So we kind of a ball being kicked out by everywhere. Uh, and um, uh, we should not forget the situations in Arakan state is getting worse and worse and people in, in, in there is not safe even for a day. So uh, the genocide have not stopped. Uh, from the Burmese military side, as well as um, the attack from the Arakan army in Rohingya villages have not stopped. Thank you very much. Um, just to move on to the next question, which is, this is directed to anyone on, on, on the panel who's interested in answering. And the question is, could you tell us why uh, food aid is uh, being cut in the refugee camps? Um, who are the organizations involved in this decision and what reason is um, uh, being cited uh, for cutting food aid? Um, I guess I could give some kind of answer to that. Um, the context is wider, like lack of humanitarian funding, especially since COVID. Uh, food aid, well, aid is going down. The, the fund donors are, are giving less. Um, but, and you, you have seen food aid cuts in Yemen as well, but there's, so yeah, th they said 17% because they have, the WFP said it's cutting 17% now because it doesn't have enough money. Um, it's also said it could cut more in soon if it doesn't get more money now. So it could actually be worse, but it's not just COVID and it's not I think this goes back into what I was saying before about justice and about the lack of solution. The funding to, since 2017, the funding has gone down pretty much every year to the Rohingya like humanitarian response. It is like seriously underfunded. I haven't looked at the latest figure, but it, it's really seriously underfunded. Um, and the major kind of donors, which tend to be Western countries, yeah, there's some other countries that give some don donations and some through their own programs, but the kind of big stuff for the humanitarian response. The Western countries are not, they're showing less and less interest and perhaps perhaps don't see it as affecting them. Um, I think it's been brought up before that they will care more if about countries where people are turning up on their borders, but they aren't Rohingya turning up in Europe. So it's not a solution. It's not a problem they see they need to solve. Um, so... Yeah, funding is going down and Rohingya are suffering for that because they. I think the big problem as well is like no one wants to be reliant on aid, but they're not allowed to work either. And that's what really kind of makes it a much, much bigger crisis is because they are forced to rely on their aid and face possible arrest or the closure of their business or all sorts of punishment for trying to kind of get around that. Uh, actually, I would like to add something uh, uh, regarding this food issue uh, in the Rohingya camp. Uh, you know that uh, everyone, we know uh, the United Nations has a uh, responsibility you know, to ensure the basic needs of the refugees are met, including access to shelter, education, and medical care. So. Uh, by re reducing the food for refugees, you know, the UN is uh, failing to have a responsibility, their responsibility to, uh, you know, and uh, putting the health, the, the health and well-being of the refugees at risk, you know. So uh, we believe that there could be some uh, 
alternative option. There could be some uh, alternative measures that UN can take to address uh, these challenges uh, without compromising our uh, our uh, food resistance, without compromising our uh, yeah. essential needs. So, uh, for example, UN and the donors uh, can advocate for a livelihood solution uh, that would allow for the refugees people to be uh, self-sufficient to create their own economy in the camp. Uh, that could be also boosting the economic economy of the uh, local community. Thank you very much, Saha. Um, just um, uh, the next question is about what opportunities for collaboration exists given uh, the conditions of military rule is there civil society collaboration to try to combat the crisis and how effective is um, that collaboration? Um, from, what I, from what I understand, this is a reference for, you know, conditions uh, within the country. Um, so, you know, um, um, new alliances that may have been formed between, you know, the Rohingya and members of uh, the resistance movement um, to military rule. Um, what new forms of collaborations or kind of alliances have you seen um, over the last few years since the uh, military coup of 2021? And what can we expect to um, result from these uh, new alliances and these new kind uh, and this new kind of collaboration? Is there anyone on the panel who would like to take that? Um, like I have said earlier, that uh, since the coup, uh, the uh, the understandings of Rohingya, you know, in the country have become, uh, they are more understanding uh, about our existence. Um, so uh, there is a collaboration uh, uh, as is uh, with the Rohingya community and other ethnic group in, in Myanmar, like Karin, Kachin, Kayin, um, many others. And I'm trying to uh, be one voice, um, you know, and be in a solidarity uh, with each other cause and make it as a as a problem of the country um, and um, you know stay stand uh, together against the uh, junta military. Uh, but um, all this movement, I feel, is that uh, from my understanding, is um, they are very powerful, but the fundings uh, is one of the problems that they are not able to do. Uh, uh, bigger work, uh, you know, together, and um, it's have the limitation um, to come up with something big, I feel. Uh, example, in the United States, there are a lot of groups that I have met and, you know, very capable, uh, but uh, often they told me that the funding is uh, one of the issues that they are not able to collaborate and, and do further work, um, including in, inside Myanmar. Um, it's very sad, uh, you know, to 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 hear that it should not be that way. Uh, but I think is that um, uh, the diaspora people trying to do as much they can, uh, you know, coming out statement, uh, having this kind of meeting discussions weekly, monthly, and um, trying our best, uh, you know, so that we all uh, can live together and able to live in a country called a uh, democratic uh, country. Um, so yes, uh, the the ethnic groups are trying our level best uh, to coexist, but I think the people in the power still 
not really interested uh, in these issues. They think there's a bigger issue need to be solved us. But I think once we all come together, that is the powerful uh, things that you know can be most useful to get the democracy back, uh, democracy back to our country. So we should focus on how to bring uh, us together and you know understand the real team, uh, uh, meaning of coexist and the real meaning of democracy in the country and focus on that um, rather than focusing on a, one uh, entity's uh, policy and you know rules and stuff like that. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I, you, I see you've also left a very interesting and uh, detailed response in uh, the meeting chat. I would um, encourage everyone and all the members of the audience to um, check the meeting chat so they can read that, um, you know, responding to on questions of um, how the world can help and, you know, the uh, possibilities of international justice and so on. So thanks for that uh, contribution in, in the meeting chat as well. Um, uh, so I think we're now at time, but I just see there is one remaining question. If um, uh, those in the panel are able to uh, to stay for that, um, and that is um, directed to the uh, Rohingya members of the panel, which is, um, what do you most want the public to know about um, your community that is uh, not captured in the news headlines? Um, like I have said earlier, is that um, we should not be seen just as a victim of genocide. Uh, we should be seen in a, you know, in a bigger picture, um, first as a human that also have the talent and are able to live uh, coexistly with everyone in the country. Um, um, and um, we should be seen as a, someone that also can contribute in the country where we are. Uh, our situations make us love our country or we are inside the country, but um, there is a lot of things that we can contribute back and um, it should be given that opportunity, you know, to contribute. Education is, is the most important part. So uh, education has to be given there. Um, food is important. Shelter is important. Education is as important as that. And um, uh, we should not... Uh, um, uh with that education our generations will be you know lost and that's what the the, the burmese military want and um um the funding should go for the education as well you know education programs uh need to be uh uh created from different angles uh you know through zoom online in person different type of programs, different type of curriculum, you know, different type of, of skills uh, for the community. Um, I don't want my people uh, to be keep given a fish to eat. I want my people to be teach how to catch a fish and how to, uh, so that they can, you know, eat it the way, cook it the way they want. So what I'm trying to say is that skills it's important. Education is important. And um, the positive stories of Rohingya uh, also should come up, you know, um, uh, in, in the news. Uh, when example, when we Google uh, Rohingya, we often see the Rohingya inside the camp, you know, the very bad situation, which is the true situations. But at the same time, I think we should also promote and um, uh, bring awareness that uh, Rohingya 
you know, is is talented, you know, is also able to, you know, live as others and um, should not just look at something else. One of the questions that really haunt me all this day is that um, when I was, I explained what is Rohingya to one of my friends in Malaysia and uh, he asked me what Rohingya does eat just because he does not understand and see Rohingya, you know, I don't know what picture he have in his mind. And this is, and I, when I make a joke, you know, sarcastically say that they eat grass, he trusted me. So it's, it's, it's funny. It's very sad. Uh, it shows that the outside world do not see Rohingya the way we are. It's, they have a very different pictures of, of us. And um, I think there is another better picture of us, uh, you know, very talented, educated, um, resilience uh that we are have to be also being uh shown to the world and um yeah we like i have said always sympathy you know it's not uh, uh is the solution empathy you know have to be there and um we need to be seeing each other as equal so people like us uh, you know need to uh, like you and us together you know need to keep painting the positive pictures of Rohingya uh, in the public outside there. Okay, um, thank you very, very much. Um, I, th I think we're, uh, we are now um, over time. Um, so I think I'll hand back to um, um, Raisa and Roman. I know I found this panel extremely interesting. I've had many of uh, my assumptions challenged and I feel that I've learned a lot and uh, I hope that everyone feels the same. And so um, thank you very much. I'm, it's been a real uh, uh, privilege to be able to moderate this panel. Thank you, Ben. And I think before we go any further, and um, of course I owe thank yous on behalf of Himal to so many of you, um, a big, big, big thank you to you. And I hope that the panelists will also join me in giving you a big hand and a round of thanks. Um, thank you for that. Um, thank you also to all of you who joined us. Um, I know we are over time, so I will keep it short. Um, I just want to say um, one by one, Ruki, Zahat, Kamil, Sharifa, thank you so much. We couldn't have asked for a better set of perspectives, I think. And like Ben said, you know, I think um, we've been able to see things that we weren't seeing and to see things in ways that we weren't seeing them. And we couldn't have asked for more. Thank you so much from Himal and, and also I'm sure from, um, from everyone in the audience, um, a huge round of thanks to all of you as well. Um, with that, um, I think I should uh, draw things to a close. Um, we will, like I said, um, have a recording and a transcript of this entire session available um, soon for any of you who would like to refer to it or especially to share and amplify um, the essential things that have been said here. Please do. Um, please visit us at himalmag.com with another round of thanks to all of you. Thank you for joining us and thank you to the panelists and to Ben. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roman. Uh, before closing this panel, uh, panel, I would like to uh, I would like to ask and invite you all uh, to follow the Rohingya Tugapar magazine on Facebook and Twitter to know the reality of the Rohingya people, Rohingya uh, refugees living in the refugee camp. Uh, we uh, created this magazine project uh, to to tell the stories about the. the all Rohingya people living uh, in the refugee camp uh, to to share our voice uh, with the world and uh, to connect uh, with the people around the world. So uh, 
we have already published our magazine uh, on our website. You can check our website. You can buy uh, the magazine of through our website. So we have already published a second issue uh, last month, and we are preparing preparing uh, to publish uh, issue number three. Uh, that could uh, that would be uh, with the team of culture or food crisis. Uh, so we are discussing now uh, which team should be uh, in the initiative. So we are discussing with the community and we're discussing with the team. So yeah, uh, we will uh, keep publishing and we will keep uh, raising uh, voice on behalf of the Rohingya community uh, about the issues they're facing with the camp. So yeah, uh, please support us and uh, please uh, subscribe our website so you can uh, see uh, updates from the camp. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, Rohingya Photographer Magazine, if you Google it, that will take you to the website. It's quite eye-opening work. And yes, a perspective from the camps like nothing else that we see anywhere else in the media. So thank you for that. Um, I think with that, um, we will end the session. Thank you once again to everybody. And wherever you are in the world, have a good night or have a good day. And we will hopefully see you at another South Asia conversation soon. Thank you.